Hi, I'm Carrie Adams and you're listening to Carrie's Corner. Here we talk to the movers and shakers, the drinkers, the dreamers, the people who make it happen in the liquor industry around the world. So, let's get sipping. Today we're chatting with Jahan Milan. He is one of my favorite, favorite men. He is a fourth generation wine farmer in Stellenbosch. We've got loads to celebrate because his family were the first people to ever bottle proper sparkling MCC wine in South Africa. And we all know and love Simon Sikharpsefonkel. And we're celebrating 50 years of that this year at the same time as celebrating 50 years of the Stellenbosch wine route. So there's loads to celebrate. Johan, thanks so much for joining me on Biz News. Thank you very much for having me, Karen. I'm looking forward to chatting to you. Well, we've got lots and lots to chat about because in these podcasts, I make you bear all. You've got to basically drop your pants in Park Station. And by the time we're finished, everybody is going to know exactly who you and your family and your wines and your everything is. So fourth generation farming in the Cape. Tell us a little bit about your very proud family history. You know, my father actually grew up in Wellington on a wine farm there and um, went to school in Cape Town at Jan van Riebeek. So he was already uh, used to the big city mm. uh, from a young age. And uh, when he finally uh, got to Stellenbosch University, he studied winemaking, like viticulture and enology. And um, during that time, his father died at a very young age. So an, an uncle of him told him that he must rather sell the farm because he can always buy another farm, but he will never be <laughs> able to get his geleertheid. So his studies uh, had to take priority, uh, which was actually done at the time. Uh, was, I think, in the late 40s. And then um, during his uh, time at Stellenbosch University, he met my mother, uh, whose father happened to have a wine farm in Stellenbosch. It's always and, handy um, to marry a girl who's like, like me, marry a girl who's got a bottle store, you know. It's very, yeah. it's very handy. So um, anyway, that was uh, the beginning of his uh, career in Stellenbosch because the first 10 years he just rented the farm from his father-in-law and then uh, finally in 1964 he took it over and uh, immediately started uh, expanding and bought another vineyard across the valley, uh, modernized the cellars and in those days, you know, Cold fermentation was was really very new, started in the late 50s, and uh, he was the first private winery to install a refrigeration plant, like a cooling plant, to chill the water that would run over the tanks to control fermentation temperature. He was was very much a pioneer. There were many firsts that came out of your father, but we'll get on to those. Carry on telling us about your history. so uh, that was in 1964, and uh, obviously I think he spent a lot of money and in, in was developing the second farm and then realized that making wine to sell to the big merchants at the minimum good wine price, which at the time he told me was nine cents a liter, was <laughs> not going to pay the bills. Oof. So. Then in 1968, he uh, bottled the first wines under the Simonsoch label, which just for the English-speaking people means the view of Simon or Simon's view, um, which is directly opposite the estate. So we've got this beautiful view of Simonsburg, which was named after the founder of the town of Stellenbosch, uh, Simon van Stel. Now, Johan, was the farm called Simonsoch when he took it over from his father-in-law? The original farm was called De Wip. 
which he couldn't use on the label because it was registered by somebody else. And uh, the farm Simonsach, when he bought it in 64, actually had the wonderful name of Hillbrow. And, <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine? We would be selling so yeah. much in Johannesburg now. We would have been selling <laughs> lorry loads in Joburg. But <laughs> at the time... Uh, when Paul Sauer of Kanonkop uh, was still uh, at the farm at Kanonkop and he said to my father, Franz, you can't have a farm in Stellenbosch called Hilbrauch. And that's <laughs> when the farm was changed to Simonsach. And uh, the first three wines were bottled in 1968. Uh, so that was uh, our celebrations in 2018 because that was uh, 50 years later. Yes. Um, and always I have to put a bit of context to this because... At that time, uh, Simonsach was only the fifth privately owned wine estate in Stellenbosch to bottle their own wine. And outside of Stellenbosch, there were less than five. So it was a very pioneering thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it took a lot of courage and it was very difficult and very different compared to what uh, the situation is today because the wine drinking culture was so underdeveloped and very few people yes. actually drank anything but um, Swedish white wine and red wine was really uh, a, a very small part of the market. So difficult times to start, but that led him to innovate and to do a lot of uh, novel things. I'm interested that he was studying viticulture and enology already in those times. I didn't even know that they offered those courses when our parents were sort of going to varsity and stuff. Yeah, I think that uh, I'm not exactly sure when the viticulture and enology uh, department started, but I think agriculture was probably one of the first mm. uh, faculties of, at Stellenbosch University, which is now more than a 100 years old. And uh, he actually uh, finished his uh, first uh, qualification, then went on to study a master's degree in winemaking. At the time, he was still doing the research and he was lecturing at Elsenburg. By the time he was finished, they got married, and my grandfather gracefully said that he will he will move to town <laughs> and uh, leave and and leave them to farm. The farm over to him. Yes. Well, he, there, as you say, a massive pioneer, and I think that that's one of the one of the characteristics that we really need to start celebrating and saluting going forward in South Africa, because I'm not sure that any of the kids nowadays have any clue what it means to be a pioneer because they just haven't been brought up in that environment. If you consider, I mean, this is completely different, but if you consider the fur trekkers, for example, who got into their ox wagons and schlepped over the the mountain ranges of the Drakensberg, mm. etc., in order to get to the Transvaal to sniff out the gold that was there, it's unbelievably tenacious. And I think that we really do need to start celebrating the South African nation for the tenacity and pioneering spirit that they really have shown to date. And we need to start recapturing that tenacity and that pioneering spirit. Also, the fact that the education that went into all of this was amazing. A, I don't know about you, it didn't come free of charge for all of us, uh, contrary to popular belief. I had a student loan that I took 10 years to pay back. But it is so important to keep on reiterating to the youth, and that's what we need to do. We need to start handing over that baton and say, 
you're not going to get this unless you have these same qualities that are required to to be successful. So he was educated. He was courageous. He was newly married. He moved to the farm. And then what? Well, um, as soon as he had the first wine in the bottle, which he sold for the exorbitant price of six rand a case of 12 bottles. Uh, but wow. if, you compare, if you compare that to nine cents a liter, it was actually a, a very good... Uh, a king's a, ransom. Adding value. <laughs> yes, it was adding value. And um, But soon realized that it's very hard to sell the wine. And uh, firstly, we started a mail order business that uh, would send out newsletters with order forms and then the wine. The letters would be posted back to the farm with the check before the days the of uh, credit cards and the order would be made up and load on a, loaded on a train at Kulinov station and then sent all over the country. And that was uh, such an efficient uh, system, you know. Um, so that was the beginning. But I think to get uh, a wider view on the international world of wine, he traveled to France in the first time I remember was in, in 1969 with his good friend, Wimnil Joubert of Speer and my mm. mother and uh, Tani Bonti. And they were in a car and I think they spent about two months traveling around Europe. Can you um, imagine that fun? <laughs> yeah, I must say. And, and that is, is where a lot of the uh, new ideas were born because the, the wine route idea uh, happened in Burgundy in the town of uh, Moray-Saint-Denis. And many years later, he took me and my brother uh, on a trip to Europe and France, and he, he actually showed me this. He said, this is where I got the idea for the wine route. And it was a, a sign next to the road that said, Route du Vin. And uh, he said to uh, Neil Joubert, but why don't we start this in Stellenbosch? So on their return, Spud Sperling was at Delheim and already more experienced uh, in bottling his own wine because I think he started in the in the early 60s. So uh, the three of them uh, got together and uh, wrote letters to all the other producers in Stellenbosch to encourage them to join in the wine route. And um, after waiting for the people to respond, they only got one reply. <laughs> So, uh, and who was, was that very, from? <laughs> unfortunately, that I, I, I never got the name, but um, <laughs> uh, that wasn't very encouraging. But with the energy of, of the three of them, they actually said, well, we have to go and see these people. So they drove around to all the farms and even the, the cooperative wineries in those days were, uh, tr- they were pulled in. Yes. Um, because they didn't have labels, they didn't have uh, wine to sell to the public. You but can there was no identity, were... so yeah. Yes, so there was no, uh, what would be the advantage for them to join a wine route? But eventually they, they managed to get uh, enough um, people interested. So in finally in 1971, Stellenbosch Rhine route was founded actually this past Saturday, the, the 17th of April, 50 years ago, a big uh, ball or a function was held in the Stellenbosch Town Hall and the wine route was launched officially. So uh, some of the other issues that uh, they had to overcome was firstly, uh, they were not allowed to put up signage next to the road to tell people that, listen, this way is their line, this way is... <laughs> this way, way for tasting, this, w- this is where we are, yeah. Why not? Very, uh, Why weren't they? won't believe it, but the authorities uh, said that it will distract people's attention from the road and they will make accidents. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> wow. So, so again, they, they thought of a plan and they invited the administrator of Cape Province in those days to, to come out to, to the wine route on a Saturday or a weekday, I can't remember. And, uh, I think they started at Simonsuch and, um. Tell me he got lost. Few, Hopefully he got lost first. <laughs> <laughs> had a few glasses of, uh, of Carbs of Funkel and they put him in a money bus. <laughs> and off to Delheim they went, and they already said to him, you can see, how are you going to know where to go? And they said, no, he's already lost. So um, immediately put up the signs, and that was the battle was won. Um, oh, wow. And, we actually uh, interviewed Nora Sperling the other day on Biz News, and we were just enjoying similar kind of stories that she was telling about her dad. He was also – I mean, those three – were really the three musketeers of the wine industry, weren't they? Well, and naughty and sort of pulling each other's leg all the time. Yes. Um, and, you know, I remember uh, Wim Spatz uh, sort of doing a toast on my, one of my father's birthdays and so on, and he would tell stories at the detriment of my father um, <laughs> and kill himself laughing because at one stage he said my dad came to his to, to Delheim and he was really down in the dumps and he could the spots could see there's something seriously wrong but in the 70s you know red wine was in big demand and it was a challenge to get the red wines in the bottle on the on the market quite early mm. so the trick was to add a little bit of sugar my father made a, a, a decimal Mistake. So instead of adding two grams of sugar, he added 20, 20. grams of sugar. So he, off to the spots, he went to ask for advice. And of course, spots thought it was the funniest thing ever, you know. He, yeah, no sympathy was, from that court. No, it wasn't the kind of uh, advice my dad was looking for. What did he do but with it? I, I still remember we had a label like a vineyard selection, which uh, mm. was just do you used to give to all the people you didn't like every time they came to visit? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah semi-sweet uh, mm. pinotage, I think, Ooh. was born. Um, <laughs> but that was their, their relationship, uh, always trying to take the mickey out of each yes. other. Yeah, it was very um, endearing. We owe a lot to those three gentlemen, I can tell you. Anyway, on with your story. Um, yeah, uh, my brother Francois actually reminded me the other day that, you know, in the early days uh, when South African Airways took possession of their first uh, Boeing 747s, this big jumbo jet was a mm. huge attraction, but people didn't uh, fly overseas that often in those days. So the, the Stellenbosch wine route uh, put out a package and they said, well, you can buy a ticket, we'll fly you down to, to uh, Cape Town on a Saturday and... Uh, at the airport, you get into uh, luxury buses, and then you would go and visit a wine farm, um, mm. have lunch there uh, or a braai or something. And the same afternoon, you return to the airport, uh, and a case of wine was was included. Wow. And uh, fly back to Joburg all all in one day. Um, so people had the novel experience of flying in the seven forty seven. And also visited the wine route. And uh, I think I still remember it, you know, suddenly there would be seven or eight buses arriving at the farm. And it was absolute chaos almost because you had to prepare tastings and, and food for that, uh, yes. for that uh, huge number of people. But um, 
It was also a pioneering thing to do at the time, I think. No, they did. I mean, everything that they did was a first. There were so many firsts, and there's so many that we have to celebrate. One of the things that I loved was last year you won the Diners Club Winemaker of the Year competition, and it was a specifically or particularly auspicious year because it was Diners Club's 40th anniversary and this year is to be Simon Sakapsa Fonkel's 50th anniversary. So it was very fitting and we were very excited about it. I love the new packaging that you've put Simon Sakapsa Fonkel into because everybody knows Simon Sakapsa. It is one of the best loved. Tell us the journey of the Kapsa Fonkel and why your dad wanted to make that bubbly. I think it might have been as a result of his trip with his, his road trip with his mates in France. But tell us the story of Kapsa Fonkel. I think the idea was also uh, started at, on that same trip to France, um, visiting Champagne. He came back with the idea to do something similar in South Africa. Uh, sparkling wine has been made in South Africa since 1929, uh, but it was always the carbonated uh, version. Where and you, sweet. Uh, it was always sweet as well. The South African palate was really sweet in those days. One of the reasons behind it was that we didn't have access to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and, and things like Sauvignon Blanc. Um, Merlot wasn't available. A Riesling, the proper German Riesling, wasn't available. So he was uh, keen to expand his his range and his offering of wines to to his uh, customers. And uh, but he only had Chenin Blanc or Stien, as we called it in those days. Yeah. Cape Riesling and Claret Blanc. So he thought, well, he already made a slightly sweeter uh, Chenin Blanc called Francis Carner. Um, and yeah, uh, then I remember he thought, that well, Francis Carner. Mm. It was hugely popular in the 70s. Mm. Um, and then uh, he thought, okay, if he, if he can make a sparkling wine with uh, uh, Meto Champenoise, even using Chenin Blanc, it would create something different and something extra or that that uh, you could offer to the market. And uh, because there were no Chardonnay Pinot Noir available, he used Chenin Blanc very much like the the wines of the Loire Valley and, the Loire, in, yes. in Vouvre. Mm. Yes. So it wasn't that unusual to use Chenin Blanc. And then the first uh, vintage was 1971. Uh, nobody had experience of this style of wine and nobody could actually give advice. Uh, no equipment actually existed, and no. many of the of the, the equipment that was needed had to be locally made, like the freezing bath to to freeze the necks of, of the bottles, yes. um, the the riddling racks or the pupitas. Uh, I don't know why he just didn't just import it from France, but he went to a a local. Stellenbosch uh, carpenter shop and uh, gave him a description of what he what they wanted and mm. it, it was really a work of art but it was completely well you know you say that I mean the coloured community of the Cape are hailed internationally as some of the best coopers in the world they're very good carpenters and I'm absolutely certain that knowing him he would have gone to some of the coloured community and said this is what I want make it for me and they probably did an amazing job of it. Yeah, the, the artisans were uh, in this. Mr. Coronier had a, 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 sh a carpentry shop. I think he did a lot of the university's uh, work uh, 
um, yes. uh, for the hostels and for the faculties. So they were very highly skilled. Yes. But, you know, this is something that I think the description wasn't also uh, really uh, what it should have been. <laughs> and uh, I always remember it was incredibly uh, shaky and rickety and so on. Um, but it, it did the job. So that was. Well, let's the, just explain the, to the listeners what a pupitre is. A pupitre is a sort of an A-frame. It's two boards strung together that you might have seen in movies maybe about champagne where they put the bottles in neck down, neck first, into holes, into these two um, joined A-frame planks. And they use those pupitres in order to what we call riddle or turn the bottles during the process of the second fermentation that's happening in that bottle in order to get the bubbles. So those were the pupitres that we had to make a recipe for in South Africa because we didn't have any. So that's yet another pioneering feat of your father's. And on we go. Yeah, in the first couple of years, well, when he, he finally uh, released the first cups of Funkel, he couldn't call it champagne. South Africa had the, the so-called crayfish agreement with the French government that they would buy our crayfish and we won't use their regional names like Chablis, Champagne, uh, mm. Burgundy, Bordeaux, etc. So um, that wasn't possible. And uh, so he came up with the name Carps of Funkel, which means uh, Cape Sparkle, and his idea was that this would become the generic name for uh, bottle-fermented sparkling wine, even if somebody else would start something similar. Uh, Yeah, but it it took about 10 years before finally Boschendal and Achim von Arnhem started to do um, Metod Champenoise, and uh, by that time, Karpselfunkel was was quite well established, so uh, that idea didn't work. But incidentally, mm-hmm. I'll tell you something but more about the start of the the term Cap Classique uh, many years yes. later. But when he released the first Cups of Funkel, it was the most expensive white wine in South Africa, three rand a bottle. Um, <laughs> but if you think that, that the steel wow. cost about 50 cents a bottle, it was, it was uh, quite a bit more expensive. And it's quite interesting, Johan, because to make a sparkling wine like that, out of Chenin Blanc is a huge art because you a don't have the you don't have the necessarily the natural acidity that Chardonnay and Pinot Noir bring to the bubbly. He must have agonised over the entire process of making this bubbly out of a Chenin Blanc. It would have been much easier if he could just have gone and spent a little bit of time in Champagne and learnt how to do it there. Yeah, I think. Um well, it's, I can almost say it's easier using Pinot Noir and Chardonnay because yeah. Chenin, when you pick it so early, is, is quite linear and, and they can be quite sharp in terms of wine. Yeah, uh, it doesn't taste wine. nice. To try and make, yeah. to try and get the natural acidity correct, you're actually losing out on massive fruit quality, you know, <laughs> so it must have been terribly difficult. Yeah, I, I think that uh, once I joined uh, in 1982, so I soon realized that um, we have to get closer to the authenticity of, of Champagne, uh, but we had no Chardonnay, we had no Pinot Noir, and that only materialized in 1987 when I had a small vineyard of Pinot Noir and a small vineyard of, of Chardonnay, and I decided to use it for the Carps of Funkel. And uh, so that was the big change 
uh, in the uh, the blend of of carbsafunkel but then i realized that you know if you have one tank of pinot one tank of chardonnay how do you actually know if it's if it's of any good quality um <laughs> you couldn't really experiment or you couldn't do many different things it was just not enough and uh, so in in 1988 i phoned up uh, the other winemakers who who made the style of wine and I uh, said, well, bring your base wines to Simonsach and we'll have a, a tasting Taste of base wines. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't a, a competition. But, you know, the wonderful thing that I will always uh, treasure is the fact that everybody was so open and nobody had secrets or no. um, uh, they shared their knowledge, their experience. And together we we learned from each other. And that was uh, so refreshing because we were actually competitors, but we were all at a disadvantage that we had very little knowledge. And I remember the, the books that you could find were all in <laughs> French. So I had articles <laughs> translated at the university just to try and read something about this. Yes. Anyway, that, that uh, base wine tasting is still happening today, but it uh, was the the beginning of what would become uh, the Cup Classic Producers Association Founded in 1992. So, and whose um, idea was the was the name Cap Classique? Because it that's a special story too. Yeah, when when we uh, were doing these base wine tastings uh, every year, we all sat around the table. This is now Jeff Greer, Peter Ferreira, Achim von Arnhem, uh, Kurs Bosman was the guy at uh, um, Stellamos Farmers, uh, Hilko Hegovich. Mm. And I'm sure I'm leaving out Nikki Kruner, of course. Yes. And um, and we sat around the table and said, but listen, we can't use Meto Champenoise on our label. Can't call it champagne. And everybody out there in the market uh, talk about, oh, we had some champagne last night uh, or at a wedding. And uh, mm. there was no differentiation between the carbonated version as and uh, the yes. bottle fermented one. And we started playing with, okay, it's Meto Traditionnel or Meto Classique. Um, but it's from the Cape. And then at one stage we thought we're going to call it Le Cup. But then Cup Classique was finally, I always say after many bottles, the inspiration <laughs> came to us. And, um, <laughs> it always does. It's amazing how creative you can become when you're sort of on bottle number 10, hey? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, then we said, okay, we must f- form an association to promote this style of wine. And that was the, uh, uh, the beginning of the Cup Classique Association, which, you know, I only realized much later that it was the first association of a specific style of wine. Like you have the Pinotage Association, yes. the Chenin Blanc Association, the Port Producers. Cup Classique was actually the first one of its kind in South Africa and we were 14 guys who signed the original constitution mm-hmm. and today we have about 120 members um, mm. there are more than 200 winemakers making Cup Classique in South Africa so really? the, the, the category is, is very strong and uh, from from a very uh, humble beginning in 71 it's uh, a huge milestone for Cup Classique also to celebrate yes its 50th uh, anniversary in South Africa, and it's now become an, an internationally recognized uh, name for South African Cup Classic. Or, uh, Absolutely, and I mean, we've been awarded internationally uh, many, many times 
for the quality of the bubbly that is coming out of South Africa. Johan, a lot of people I don't think, I mean, much as you and I are sort of live, breathe, eat, walk, sleep, talk, wine and everything that goes with it, I think there are quite a lot of the public who are still unaware of how extraordinarily special proper bubbly is. In a nutshell, just tell everybody briefly how you make those bubbles happen in your bottle without injecting them like a bottle of Coca-Cola. Yeah, Kerry, there are a couple of uh, central ideas that are not negotiable. So firstly, the the three grape varieties that most people use and also in Champagne, uh, Pinot Minier is a black grape, Chardonnay is the white. So in order to to get white juice out of the Pinot Noirs and the uh, Pinot Miniers, you have to do whole bunch pressing. So the grapes are not brought to the cellar and crushed. The, The idea is that you put the whole bunch into the press and as soon as you start applying pressure the juice runs out without macerating with the skins so the the juice mm. that comes out from the center of the berry is pure white uh, juice uh, so you mm. don't want to extract any color so that's one of the key parts of of the quality yes. secondly uh, when you're pressing we separate the juice into the cuvee which is your free run juice the the top quality juice uh, then you do the first pressing, which is kept separate and used for other purposes. So that's, then you go through your first fermentation, which is in tank and the cuvee is fermented. Sugar is converted to alcohol because it's just pick, flat wine. Like you normally make normal that's wine, a normal still wine, but because we pick slightly underripe. So quite early in the season. So January. Before the other grapes are picked and before the sugar levels go too high. That is to achieve a, a lower than normal alcohol content. So let's say about uh, 10 to 11. That's about the, yeah. the where we, what we aim for because now the wine has to go into the bottle and undergo a second fermentation. So after uh, the harvest, we, we prepare the base wines and make up the blend. Before it goes into the bottle, we actually add the, normal cane sugar, um, just the right amount, um, which we uh, determine uh, because the, the sugar and the yeast go into the bottle and the bottle is then sealed with a temporary crown seal. That's mm, kind so of it's like top. the top on a, on a beer bottle. On a beer bottle, yeah, that's mm. a, a crown cap. So now you have sugar and yeast and the wine in the bottle and a second fermentation starts in the bottle and as the yeast then converts that sugar uh, into alcohol, carbon dioxide, the bubbles, actually one of the byproducts. Um, but because the bottle is sealed tight, the uh, the gas cannot escape and it dissolves in the wine. So it creates a natural sparkle as opposed to the mm. the one that you put into the uh, into a wine artificially, almost like a soda stream. So this is yes. a natural sparkle created by by the yeast and yeah, the pressure inside. The, Every bottle of Cup Plus Six is around about six bar. I so know. Put, I always say, you know, we put two into our big four by four cars or whatever, and there's seven in that little bottle. So it is, it's such an extraordinarily special process, really. Yeah. Um, it's, so the, the CO2 is dissolved in the wine. Um, but then once this fermentation is completed and there's no more sugar left, the yeast become inactive and it settles down on the, on the inside of the bottle, but you have to get rid of this 
to um, to make the wine clear and drinkable. And that mm. is where the the riddling or the remouage, as the French call it, come into play. And uh, you mentioned the pupitres earlier on. The bottles are then uh, riddled in a very specific way so that eventually when they are upside down, the yeast is all settled in the neck. Um, the bottle neck is then frozen, so the yeast is, is a, in a solid plug of ice. So when you So you basically remove, take that bottle out of the pupitre, keeping it facing down, and you yes. plunge it into liquid nitrogen or something, don't you? What how do you uh, freeze it? No, it's it's a it's a freezing solution that is at about minus twenty. So uh, within seven, eight minutes or so that little ice plug is formed. Um and when you turn the bottle upright the yeast is not doesn't fall back into the wine, and that it's is it's all the, frozen into that little neck, all, isn't it? Yes. So then you remove the cap, uh, the crown cap, and the pressure inside will then expel the the ice plug with the yeast, and then, as the French say, voila! There you have. It's just uh, so ingenious. It's basically man's way of cleaning up a whole lot of dirty dead yeast cells lying at the bottom of a bottle. You turn it upside down. But what we're failing to tell them as well is that the amount of time that this all takes, because you might well look at a bottle. I mean, really, if you think of it, a bottle of carps of funkel, if you think of all the skill and the time and the capital intensity of a product like that, we should be selling it for about 600 rand a bottle at least. Hey, I can see a smile well, on your face. Here, um, huh? Yes, I, I think the... Um the value that that uh, Classic offers is is just fantastic, um, because of, not only because of the amount of work that goes into, but I think because of the quality that you're getting in the glass. You know the the, the period of time between bottling and uh, disgorgement is uh, used to be nine months in South Africa minimum time on the on the yeast because that's where a lot mm. of the flavor and the texture and the, the character yes. of the Kaplasik comes from. Um, through the Kaplasik Association, we've now uh, had a research project and based on, on the facts that we uh, um, discovered there, that minimum time is going to increase to, to 12 months, so longer yeast contact time which would uh, mean more intense flavors. So that's already a, a, a big step forward. I think that will improve. I think it's going to make a huge difference because for those of uh, the listeners who don't really know, sometimes you can mistake, um, if you, if you don't have a, a hugely um, educated palate, you can mistake that lovely round nutty oakiness for Lee's contact. Or you can, you know, the least contact is what does a lot of the work that wood would normally do, doesn't it? I mean, it gives it that creamy, fat, nuttiness that we would normally expect to get from wood. But bubbly doesn't go into wood unless you ferment in barrel, I assume. Yeah, wood, wood is, is used, but not on a big scale there texture and the extra flavors is because of the yeast cells that are mm. uh, lying in the inside of the bottle and they actually autolyze. So that means they, they break up automatically and that releases uh, all sorts of flavors and compounds like amino acids back into the wine and uh, yes. give it more uh, of a fatness and a mouthfeel, which uh, gets more with time. So our aim is to improve that or increase that length of time um, from 9 to 12 months and hopefully, you know, in the longer run, even more to 15 months. But I know there are many cup classics on the market now 
nowadays that uh, spend five years or even longer on the yes. on the yeast, and you can just uh, uh, taste the difference. So it has a very definite uh, quality benefit. Yeah. Well, I think that we all have a duty of care to make sure that as many South Africans as possible get out there and buy our local bubblies because they are they certainly over deliver on quality as opposed to price. If we're having a look at at their brothers and sisters from all over the rest of the world. In fact, the other evening I did a very interesting tasting with one of our colleagues in the industry and we tasted eight different bubblies from eight different countries in the world. And it was very surprising. The one that was the most beautiful was actually a South African one, and I thought that it was a French bubbly because it was all blind tasting. I thought that it was French, and it was one of those that had spent an inordinate amount of time on the lees like that. So you ended up with this gorgeous, rich, creamy, golden, nutty, beautiful, soft, foaminess in your mouth it really was delicious we have to make sure that more people in south africa uh, value the quality of our bubbly how are we going to do that you know uh, there's definitely a very positive uh, development taking place uh, we always had the uh, cup classic festival uh, that the association has been running in franchuk for many years now and uh, we always invited some french champagne houses so that people could uh, enjoy both. Um, mm. And I think that sort of openness it was an indication that we're not, we're not there to compete with French no. champagne. We're not, not that we are scared of, of French champagne, but the question I get quite often is that how do we compare with French champagne? Yeah. And the, I, the main story is that we don't ever try to make a copy of French champagne because we'll never be successful if we're trying to emulate what they do with their very northerly uh, location, very cold, marginal climate, very chalk-rich soils. Uh, we are in the Cape. We have mm. one thing that they don't have, and that's lots of sunshine. We have a moderate climate here, and, and for us, ripening and sunshine, uh, we can get it in abundance. So that means our Cup Classic wines uh, are perhaps more fruit-driven and more expressive because of the uh, access the to sunshine and to the sun mm. and to the climate. So it is something, our soils are also very different, you know, uh, even within the Western Cape, the soils in Robertson compared to Stellenbosch and Franschhoek and uh, up the West Coast, they're all very different. And I think that also gives us an expression of something that is true to our terroir. We must be honest and say we're making a wine in the Cape, and that has to express the characteristics from our terroir. So uh, from that point of view, the other thing I I also want to stress is that um, there's a big change in the market happening, and it's been happening for a few years now, is there's a huge uh, growth in the popularity of of Cup Classics that are slightly sweeter, and uh, the the French call it demi-sec, which if you translate it, directly means half dry but very soon uh, in South Africa we uh, the market actually coined a whole new concept and it's called uh, nectar so uh, there are many different nectars on the market with a slightly higher dosage level so slightly sweeter and I find that this is growing uh, at a 
a very rapid pace. And I always say there are a lot of first-generation wine drinkers in South Africa. To suddenly have a glass of Brut Cutlassie can be very challenging. If your palate is not used to it, uh, it's yes. very dry. So with a little bit of sweetness, it becomes something that is much easier to enjoy and uh, to drink and easier to start to like. And that is the, the new trend now where people are discovering Cup Classic with a slightly uh, sweeter taste and it's doing wonders for the category. No, it's brilliant. Let's tell everybody about the Simon Sich one because you've got two gorgeous ones called Satin Nectar. Where did the satin come from? Oh, I, I did what my father did. You know, I stole with my eyes and I, uh, I got <laughs> the idea somewhere on a, on a, in France, I think on a champagne label. And I always thought, how can we, uh, uh, use this? Because that's the kind of texture that you feel in your mouth. We always say the, the bubbles and the mousse must be creamy and it, it almost must have this uh, texture of satin. Um, and the two satins we have, uh, the one is the satin nectar, which is, uh, the white one. And then the satin nectar rose. And this was almost the, the main, uh, event of our 50th uh, anniversary celebration is that we created two very exciting packages for these two satin wines uh, that is an expression of uh, the South African floral kingdom because the the, the graphics uh, are very, very vivid and with very bright colors. Um, yes. So our philosophy behind it was like Africa rising and this was unashamedly South African uh, and of the African continent. And there are th three of the the flowers uh, depicted on the design uh, out of the floral kingdom. So, um, again, like Cap Classique is proudly South African, uh, the two satin nectars are also uh, proudly South African and African, of well, not course. Not only are they proudly South African, they are absolutely delicious. Everybody has got to have for the next, for the rest of the year, go and buy a few cases of each because there is no better Sunday morning breakfast. I've done a trade-off with God that if I don't get out of bed early enough on a Sunday morning to go to church, and we haven't really been allowed to go to Mass with COVID. So I've done this trade-off that if I do a bottle of satin nectar with scrambled eggs and some nice opera on a Sunday morning, could that be my equivalent of going to church and saying thank you for everything that we've got in South Africa? Because we do have lots to say thank you for, not least of which the Simon Sikh Karps of Funkel. Johan, you're such a legend. Your family has contributed so unbelievably to the rich, rich heritage of our South African wine industry. You're still doing it, and... Your children are going ahead of you now to continue carrying that, waving that flag. How do we ever thank the likes of the Milan family other than to just buy millions of litres of the gorgeous wine that you make? Thank you so much for joining me on Biz News today. It's been an absolute privilege to speak to you. Thank you very much, Kerry. It's been, uh, for me, also a very nice journey to look a bit at the, the history and where we come from. And also uh, looking forward uh, into the future, I'm very confident that Kaplasik, Kaupsefunkel and Simonsuch, we're from South Africa and we are here to stay. Well, it's brilliant. Let's all raise a big glass of bubbly to the to the Milans, to Simonsuch and to South Africa. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.